Welcome to the Friday, September 24th edition of the Clemson Dubcast. Beautiful weather. Wow, fall is here. Outstanding. Clemson on the way to Raleigh. First game at NC State, fourth game of the year. Expecting a bit of a shakeup on Clemson's offensive line this weekend. We got much more on that at TigerIllustrated.com, plus, as always, the excellent recruiting intel from our Paul Strelo. Never a better time than now to subscribe, TigerIllustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864 990 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Football season is grilling season, and Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio is South Carolina's premier source for the big three. Weber, Traeger, and Big Green Egg Grills. Blackstone Griddles, too. I'm Jack Oliver. Grill all your tailgate favorites to perfection with a premium gas, charcoal, or pellet grill, then top it all off with something sizzling from your Blackstone Griddle. For grills, griddles, patio furniture, hot tubs, and saunas, shop in store or online at Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio, Forest Drive in Columbia, and jackoliverpools.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-35. Okay, catching back up with Mickey Plyler on how to navigate things when you're a sports talk show host in Clemson and Clemson's offense is playing, let's just say, a bit less than what the standard has been over this brilliant run over Dabo Sweeney in recent years. And then we're going to get the Pulse from up in Raleigh with NC State. Joe Giglio, longtime Wolfpack observer, beat writer, all that stuff. He's a radio personality now. Looking forward to that. But first... Mr. MP, Mickey Fowler. Here we go. Okay, joined by Mickey Plyler, who is it? Is it? I don't want to be unfair to your listeners, but do you feel like a babysitter sometimes? Well, I keep my son every day from 10 until 4 until my wife gets home. But uh, I joked the other day with my producer. I said, you know, I, I babysit, and then I go home and keep my son. No. <laughs> On a serious note, and you you do this, uh, you and I talk about this off the air a lot. It's dangerous to talk down to your constituency and to your listeners, the people that are listening to you. It is. It's very dangerous. I don't want to do that. But because I want to admit, too, that you and I are, we don't know all the ins and outs and all the answers. Matter of fact, we know maybe there's a lot of listeners or readers that might know more than us. But to me, the frustrating part of this week has been. The revisionist history, or just people—I know you're frustrated, and you—you you, you need to be frustrated. I get that, but don't don't say ridiculous stuff. You know, uh, don't point the arrow in the wrong direction. In my opinion, does that make sense? Yeah. What, what ridiculous stuff like what? 
Well, I had a guy on my radio show this morning tell me that the pick six on the Georgia game was a screen pass. Everybody knew a screen pass was coming because the plays are predictable. Where obviously it wasn't a screen pass. Or uh, texture saying that Robbie Caldwell is, is too old. He needs to go. And then two texts later to go, our problem on offense is inexperienced with C.J. and Tyler Grisham. Like, it's either one or the, or the other. Uh, or they, the line of, they didn't make any halftime adjustment when – they really did make halftime adjustments. Um, you know, one of the narratives now is that the offensive line's tipping every single play. Well, there are plays which they, they actually run out of a two-point stance, and there are plays where they actually pass out of a three-point stance. And they've got – I don't know. Here's my point, Larry, is that are there issues? Yeah, tons of them. Um, but we as fans, I think, and as media members, this staff is as proven – through winning championships and breaking records that they're equipped to hopefully fix whatever the problems are, much more than we are and us pointing fingers and blaming and having people fired and all. To me, that's the frustrating part, and that's the unfair part. Criticism, fair praise, all day long, but unfair, unjustified, or revisionist history. You know, to say, I got a lot of this, Tony Elliott stinks, he's terrible, well... Uh, they've broken every offensive record, and they've won more games and won more championships. Uh, you know, to say that the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So then the argument of that, the counter argument that is, well, he's had generational talent. Well, when's the last time Nick Saban didn't have generational talent? Or Urban Meyer or Ryan Day or Lincoln Riley. I mean, uh, last time I checked, John Wooden won because of Bill Walton and Lou Alcindor. Uh, I mean, Mike Krzyzewski won because of having great players. I don't know of a single coach at any level that wins without great players. So, I don't know. I, I just think that I'm all for fair criticism. I'm just not for revisionist history and then unfair criticism. But that's a fine line we walk. In our, in our field of, of taking blame and, and, and yet criticizing our listeners or our readers, I don't want to criticize listeners or readers, but also don't want to be unfair to those what they're saying. Right, and a disclaimer before I say what I'm about to say is you're exactly right. I mean, it's nothing personal. Um, it can't be. You have to have right. thick skin when you're interacting with listeners or or subscribers. And I just more look at it as, hey, this is this is a conversation. It's like we're at a bar, you know. Right. And, um, you know, if somebody gets <laughs> somebody... I guess as a total jerk, then I guess I'll change my tune and maybe be a bit of a jerk back. But there was a thread um, that started last night on our message board that continues, and it was from the uh, Dabo uh, media uh, session last night after practice, which is generally like a short, shorter, more informal deal. It's over Zoom. And uh, we posted a video of it, uh, the complete video of, of that session. And... Uh, you have people saying, I can't believe that these media people aren't asking the questions that we have and, and, and holding them to account on a lot of these major issues that are sticking out like a sore thumb. And what they, again, this is just a respectful uh, sort of, I don't know, enlightening enlightening of, of, of how we do our jobs. And, and that's a whole other thing is I don't expect people to know the ins and outs and the particulars of of, of, of our routines, but the routine for us is we have the coaches after the game, immediately after the game, uh, the coordinators and Dabo Sweeney. Dabo Sweeney usually 
30 minutes, you know, uh, that he stands up there at the podium after the game answering any and all questions. We get Tony Elliott, the same deal. Sunday night, we get Dabo Sweeney on a teleconference. Um, Monday, Dabo has his call-in show uh, in which fans can and and do ask him questions and, and maybe I'll present some scrutiny. And then Tuesday, Dabo has his formal press conference uh, in which he sits stands for 30 to 50 minutes and answers more questions. Oh, and then I forgot, Elliot as well on Monday late mornings is available and is generally answering questions for about a half hour. So by the time Wednesday comes, all those almost all those questions have been asked. And, and if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm sitting there saying Wednesday night, no, but what's wrong with this offensive line? You know, it's just, it's a bit yeah. of overkill. I mean, we've already sort of covered that ground to a large degree. And so by that time, we're looking, we're trying to find more questions to ask that are usually, uh, uh, you know, a more secondary level because a, a lot of that ground has been plowed. So, but my point in, in, in response to this is, hey, you know, I think that, and tell me if you agree with this, and I don't know how much you've watched or listened to Dabo and Tony over the last couple of weeks. I think they've been remarkably candid with what they have been have, have been saying and identifying as the fundamental issues. Do you agree? 100%. And, and to piggyback on what you said, people are frustrated. I get it. But also... We changed the we moved the goalposts in our arguments because uh, the same guy that says that we need to ask these questions I saw on on your site and I got a couple of these text messages on mine is that why would on, on the Lin J stuff about him saying he's in the doghouse why would he come out in public with this well <laughs> either, either he's forthright with his information or he's not um, I had guys this week that several people this week that took, you know, and pitting Lin J versus CJ's doghouse. Uh, CJ Spiller, one of the most uh, impressive athletes we've ever had, one of the most popular athletes we've ever had here. I had several fans this week criticize CJ and take Lin J's side. And again, I don't know, you and I are privy to some information that, that a lot of, we're not going to get into that, but, but my point, even if I didn't have that information, I'm going to trust Dabo Sweeney, Tony Elliott, C.J. Spiller in this case. Um, They have all the information. They know much more than we would know, but for a fan to go, well, they were wrong by doing this. Well, I don't know, man. I'm going to go with the guy who has more information than they they would have on that. And and even even on the bigger picture, you know, Larry, there, there are issues on offense. And maybe they don't get them fixed the entire year. But through three weeks, this staff has enough equity, in my mind, by winning six straight divisions, six straight ACC championships, six college football playoff appearances in a row, four national championship games, two national championships, and broken every single offensive record that you can break. They've got a little bit of equity built up. That Where do we get in the world where – you can't have a bad game or bad day or even a bad year. Where do we get to the point in time where all of a sudden now you don't get to make a human mistake? Uh, and I'm glad that I'm not judging that. And I'd imagine that, again, I hate talking down to listeners or, or readers, that most are probably pretty glad that we don't aren't judged the way that we judge others. Yeah, and 
you know, something that kind of startled me, I don't want to say startled, but definitely got my attention was Sunday night. Like some context here. You remember Reggie Herring, obviously. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you remember? I don't, know, I don't know what the year was. You can maybe uh, give me the specifics. But at some point, I guess they had been drilled by Florida State, like 54 points or something. And he was, he was getting hammered by the fans. And finally he said, look, we got who we got. I don't know. When, do, you, do you remember when that was? Or was it multiple times, I guess, during his tenure? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I love Reggie. Um, I hadn't spoke to him in a couple of years. I need to get back in touch with you. Remind me of doing that. My, one of my favorite Reggie Herring stories. Quickly, uh, we can do this in the podcast form. I guess was, you know, he was an emotional guy, man. And that bald head would turn red like Yosemite <laughs> Sam's face sometimes, right? And so, <laughs> I was on at this time. I think I was on the afternoon, and they were practicing the afternoon those times. And man, I got a phone call from Reggie one morning, and he. Blistered me. Uh, he said, man, I heard on the radio, somebody told me that you said that we're blitzing at over 70% and, and we're only blitzing at 35% and whatever it might be. We're way too aggressive, blah, 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 whatever it was. And I went, no, Reggie, that was actually a caller. And he touched me up and down. I went, a caller said that I took up for you saying that those aren't the facts. He goes, oh, man, that's what my wife said. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you have a good day? <laughs> so, that's great. Uh, anyway... Shane Beamer did that this week. Remember when when the car when one of the reporters asked him about what what was Georgia's defensive line been able to do to you, and he went, "Man, they got a bunch of great players," <laughs> you know. And he, and that baffled look on his face, like I know you saw the videos, like well, they have well, great players. Well, no, the, the funniest part of that, well, that was a wonderful response from Beamer because, and I'm going to get back to my initial point on the Herring thing in a minute because, yeah, we're, we're definitely we're definitely going off uh, rambling here, but which is fine. It's a podcast. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it's me who is known to ramble, but uh, the question, oh man, nothing, nothing personal against the media guy who asked it. I think he writes for the state, but the question was, Hey uh, coach, what, what was it that Georgia was doing that was giving your offensive line problems? And it's like, I actually, <laughs> I tweeted, <clears throat> tweeted a, 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 that video, the, the snippet from that, the, the exchange and I said, that's a lot like saying, hey, what did what exactly was the great white doing to, to make it hard for that seal to swim? You know, like, if you watch the, I mean, nothing's wrong with, I mean, there are lots of stupid questions that get good answers, right? And I'm not asking media people to be, you know, Ron Jaworski or John Gruden in their football knowledge, but anybody, an average person who watched that game, and especially somebody who's paid to watch that game, surely you're going to notice the freaks that Georgia has on the defensive line and at linebacker, and it's nothing schematic that they were doing. They were just overwhelming them the entire game. So, And that's basically what Beamer said, which was awesome. Yeah, I, I love um, the, the, you know, well, the offensive line, did, I, I got this. Here, here's, here's what I got a few weeks ago. A, a, a quick little five-yard out. Bingata. This is a South Carolina State game. Guys in front of me um, are saying, he's staring down his receiver. And, and so, man, I, I, I can't do it. I to go, first of all, that's a yard out right there. I mean, if I, so you're not trying to look a safety off on a quick throw, right? 
Right. Um, about three plays later, they run an RPO. And the guy says again, like, he just keeps staring down that receiver. I'm like, well, actually, in a run pass option play, you're trying to read that linebacker and <laughs> safety about whether to keep it or to give it. You're not really staring at it. It always amazes me, like, because we we want to sound so, like, we know what we're talking about there. And I'll tell you these guys, like, my head, my eye range can go about 140 degrees, maybe. Because my head is facing one direction, how do you know where my eyes are? You know, so, I don't know. I, look, the issue is that people are frustrated, and again, rightfully so. But the other issue is is that I guess through through uh, politics or through the border or through uh, COVID and and uh, vaccines that man, we can read something on book and all of a sudden I'm an expert and I know what I'm talking about now. Man, I don't know. I, I just I know what I don't know. I don't know all the ins and outs of what they're trying to accomplish scheme-wise and X and O-wise. Right. But that's okay to admit. Now, I can go to a restaurant and tell you that, man, my steak wasn't cooked right. Well, was that the butcher's fault? Bad piece of meat? Did they have some issues with their personnel back there? Um, do they, could they, you know, is the grill, you know, not working right? Was the guy distracted because he had something else going on in his personal life? I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. I've never been a chef in my life, um, but something happened. I'm going to complain about it, not like I know, but I really don't know. And nor do you, nor do the callers or the listeners. But my point through that is also saying that this staff, enough equity in my mind at least, that we can yield them on how to fix what's going on. Uh, back to what I was getting at on the herring thing. We got who we got. And on the topic of Dabo actually and Elliot showing real candor here in the last couple of weeks, Sunday night Dabo said that. He said, we got who we got. Yeah. The next day, Tony Elliott said, this is who we have. So, to me, well, we... <laughs> It doesn't take an institutional knowledge of Dabo and a encyclopedia, encyclopedic sort of recall of all of his press conference to know conferences to know that when he doesn't like a question, he's going to let you know that he doesn't like the question. He's, I mean, you know, how many times have we seen him sort of flip out on not flip out, but but to get salty on on questions yeah. that he thinks are a joke. I haven't seen much, if any of that, in recent weeks. And I think that says something. I think that is really important to recognize. And it says to me, these dudes know they have problems, Mickey. They know they have issues on the offensive line. It's yeah. like people are expecting them to come out and say, we suck. Or, yep, I'm getting rid of Tony Elliott. Or, yep, I'm getting rid of Robbie Caldwell. What, like, you got to read between the lines after a certain point, right? Because he's not just going to bury his team three games in into a season when they're struggling. And, and when you knew, when everybody knew or should have known coming into the year, this is probably going to be a bit of a work in progress on offense, that there were big questions on the offensive line, right? Yeah. To me, here's where what we should have known and what we shouldn't have known. Um, we should have known that there were issues at center. Everybody thought it might have been Rayburn. He didn't come off. Of course, has never played center a down of his life before the season. 
right? That's I mean, so so that would be a concern. Uh, you didn't know that there would be a true freshman at left guard as a result of that, who has played okay, but last week was lost. So, I mean, that that's, that is a concern. A right tackle, brand-new starter for the first time, who's going to be a good player, I think, but a first-time offensive line starter, we've seen this in the past. This is going to be an issue. A left tackle who's never played left tackle before, um, who's doing okay, but but that, that might be an issue for you. Uh, the right guard is... I thought played great in the run game last week. Uh, struggled a little bit athletically with feet on some pass blocking stuff. Those shouldn't be – should we have – you got Justin Ross back. So, Justin Ross, after a year off, should we expect him to be what he was before? Probably shouldn't, but, you know, I'm optimistic. I'm hoping he comes back and doesn't miss a beat. No rush there. And then you put him at slot. You know, when you, when you first heard – here's how you, you think. When you first heard you putting Justin Ross at slot, you're thinking, man, we got all 6'3", six, 6'4", six, guys at wide receiver now. Well, what we found out through three games so far is they're missing some versatility in their in their wide receiver core. Um, a quarterback that showed us last year, if you go back and look at it, there were, there were some signs last year, but when you're throwing it to Amari Rodgers and Cornell Powell and Travis Etienne for most of the yards against Boston College and Notre Dame, he trusted those guys. And, and, and you know, later, in, by the way, later in the season, offensive line developed a little bit at least at that point in time. Uh, and then replacing, you know, the, the, uh, he is replacing the first pick in the, in the draft. That's going to be a drop-off, you think. And then Travis Etienne, the, the leading rusher in ACC history, bailed him out so many times last year. Oh, by the way, Larry, uh, the tight end has two big drops, one in the Georgia game, one against Georgia Tech. Oh, by the way, your, your All-American wide receiver that you think runs the wrong route against Georgia and drops a key third down. Oh, by the way, I don't know how we just gloss over this. They fumbled 11 times in three games. Most in the country. The most in the country. And so – um, can you, my mom and dad told me, Hey, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink underage drink. You can't drink, don't drink, don't drink. They praised it. I mean, they, they, they pounded my head before I was 21 years old. I drank alcohol. Does that make them bad parents? I'm sure that ball security is a major issue in practice. Does that mean that Tony Ellis, the bad offensive coach, if he fumbled 11 times in three games? So now, so that goes into what you should expect. What you should expect. DJ looked a lot better last year than he looked this year. Um, in hindsight, I think they probably put too much on this plate for the Georgia game because of that. And in the Georgia Tech game, I thought they probably took too much off this plate. But that was all hindsight, man. And we don't have that that golden goose of hindsight. You know, we don't have that luxury of hindsight um, when calling plays. Um, I call the fumble play less. I call the blocking <laughs> play more. Call more the touchdown play and less of the third down drop play. You know, don't don't. Don't don't uh, drop the ball on third down. Don't fumble the ball. You know, at halftime adjustments. I know you've done this. Uh, well, they had two hours. They didn't make any adjustments. Well, they did. DJ carried it eight times on Saturday. Seven were in the mm-hmm. second half. They had they had three drives, limited possessions. Uh, six play, thirty nine yard drive. Ross drops it on third and four. Second drive, they go sixty nine yards and twelve plays, and DJ fumbles it at the Georgia Tech seventeen. And in the third drive, 12-play, 66-yard drive, they scored. The offense looked different in the second half. They ran the ball effectively, and DJ ran the ball effectively, and it looked different. The key there was they only had it for three three possessions, and they're not having big plays right now, not hitting big plays. So part of that you'd say, got to throw the ball deep. Well, mark my words, Larry. You know this. You've been around long enough. The first in-game message board on your site and the first phone call I'm going to get on Monday morning they throw it in the coverage deep and it's picked is 
why are we forcing the ball into coverage? You know? So it's frustration. You should be frustrated. I get it. But there are reasons why, you know? And there's, there's re- I mean, we should we'd, uh, talk about the reasons. But, un- you know, halftime adjustments? No, those were made, and it was obvious those were made. There, there are, are there's a, there, there is a list, in my opinion, of legitimate yes. criticisms and questions. And I want to know the if end you... of the game, what they did at the end of the game, man, uh, you know, to be not going to take a snap under center. I get there early. They take snaps under center in pregame warm-up. I watch it. They do it. And the end of the game, how they bought, that was a botch job, complete botch job. Yeah. And, and go ahead. If you want to run down the laundry list, I'll, you know, let's go down there. Yeah, that's one for sure. Number two, um, the, the running DJ thing, I was stunned in the Georgia game that they didn't incorporate more of that. Kirk Herbstreet was also stunned because I was under the impression, and I said all off season that, oh, absolutely they're using his legs in this game because that's, that's what you have to have to have a chance to win that type of game. And then against Georgia Tech, it doesn't. It, it it it's only after that halftime adjustment that they start to realize. Oh, we need to, we need to use him more. I think that's perfectly reasonable to to question. Um, another thing is the offensive line depth. I went back and 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 listened to Dabo. This was nine days before the opener. Nine days before the Georgia game, and he was asked. How many guys do you feel like you could you feel confident throwing out there against Georgia on the offensive line? And he says, I think we got nine guys today that I feel good about. I think they're very functional, and I think we're right there at 10 or 11. We've got a 10th guy that's kind of right there. Might not be quite ready where we need him for this game, but he's right there. And we've got an 11th guy that I think is pretty close too, so I feel pretty good about it. Okay. I can't really figure out why he was that bullish on their depth at that point because, I mean, yes, injuries have played a role in chipping away at their depth, but most of those injuries came before, well before he said that. Uh, John Williams out early in camp. Taquan Johnson out before camp. Um, I guess it was Trotter. can't remember when he broke his hand. might have come after Dabo said this, in all fairness. Uh, Dietrich Pennington missed like two weeks of camp with a with an injured foot, I believe, before he tore his ACL against SC State. So do you think it's fair to look back and say, come on, you know, maybe he shouldn't be that optimistic about his offensive line depth publicly nine days before the Georgia game, saying that there he's comfortable putting five of his depth guys out there and possibly six? Um, well, Dabo is going to err inside of optimism. That's who he is. Um, and to me, that's refreshing. But, yeah, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence in those guys. I, I will say I thought the Pennington injury was big. You and I were at practice. We got to watch more preseason practice. I had a staffer come up to me and go, watch 59. That's a football player right there. Yeah. And so I think yeah. that by the end of the year, Pennington might have been started or at least some point in time playing a lot more. The Trotter injury is big for him because I know he's not big enough, but technician-wise, what they're being criticized for right now about assignment-wise and technique-wise – he, he answers that. Now, is he big enough to move Jordan Davis? Not sure who if he would have been in that one. But the big thing there, I think, is – and you're right. He's too optimistic. I get that. But the big thing there is is that you only had the ball for three drives in the second half. 
against Georgia Tech. So your offense is not like it's uh, – you had 38 plays – I'm sorry, 28 plays in the second half. So – and, and it's, a, it's a 7-3 game for most of that, right? So I, I don't want to play orange player in a close game. The difference in this year and some of those previous years is they were blowing people out and able to play a bunch of guys. If you're only going to have the ball for 28 plays in the second half, you, I don't see, you know, trying to build depth in a close game, A, and trying to build depth with not having a whole lot of snaps in there. You know? They had yeah. so many against Georgia, and they had so many, so few possessions against um, against Georgia Tech that, nah, I don't, I don't you know, I'm not going to play a lot of guys, guys then. I get that. Now, which leads to another question. Do they need to go back to using tempo? Because they're not getting a ton of offensive plays right now. And maybe tempo would help that, right? Does that make sense? Yep. And, you know, the, the thing is, I went back and watched the game again uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And I really – I had a much more – positive take on the offense than I had walking away from the game. And I think a lot of it is a lot of it is sort of tainted by you know, when you can't even take a knee on the last play and you yeah. f- fumble into the end zone, it's like oh my, God, what in the what more can this offense do wrong? And so you walk away largely sort of shaking yeah. your head over that and that sort of influences how you view the rest of the game. But the offensive line played better in the second half. There were more holes. Um, DJ on third down, if you take away his two missed throws early to Ingata and EJ, yes. on third down, he played really well. I agree. And this is against a defense that was throwing all sorts of third down looks at him. They were all standing up and moving around, and that's difficult to diagnose. Um. And then Shipley, I mean, my goodness, w- w- what a player. Like, that yeah. guy, the yards he was getting, they weren't from holes. <laughs> they, were, they were from pure instincts and speed and explosiveness and uh, ability to uh, get yards after contact. You agree with all that? That You can, you, you can see the building yeah. blocks. Even, even on a day when you score 14 points, which is just crazy to think about, you can see sort of the, the the formational sort of building blocks being laid there with DJ sort of sh- showing more emotion, Shipley also, and then just the, sh- the, the, the increase in production. Uh, the bottom line to me is that DJ is not perfect. He has made more than his share of mistakes, but he ain't getting any freaking help, man. <laughs> Yeah, so a couple things there to hit on. I agree with you. Um, there were there were a lot of positives, and Dabo said the same thing. Now, with the end of the game tainted that, uh, and so you, you're right. You walk away from first of all the, the weather delay was ridiculous, and they, they they botched the entire weather delay, in my opinion. But besides that, so you're there all day long, and I texted you during the game. I went, Clemson's offense is more more threatening this storm right now. <laughs> that was a great line. Much bigger threat. But but uh, but so yeah, you walk away from that. But Australia, I had him on my show this morning. He made a great point that in those blowout games, there was a lot that went wrong, and there were some issues in there. But when you're winning and things are going, and even even when you weren't blowing people out because you blew somebody else out earlier in the year, you 
you go, well, you know, this defense did that. We were young and turned it up. We, we had some drops and we fumbled the ball a little bit. And, you know, we're going to go, okay. This team hadn't had that offensive success yet. So it kind of, it, it, it paints a progress. Things are never as bad or never as team. And there's a lot of cover for issues they might have had. But when Trevor Lawrence is covering them up and Deshaun Washington covered them up and Travis Higgins covered them up and T. Higgins has covered them up, man, that, that's a, Good, you know, it you out of a. Uh, Nicky, you're, you're you're breaking yeah, up a little bit on me. It's clicking in and out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry about that. That's all right. Um, I, I, I'll, I'm not sure that that they had, they had other issues in the past, but the personnel is the issue to me right now. Now I'll say this too, Larry. Um, this staff might not be able to figure it out because maybe they have who they have. I don't think this is an easy fix, though. Do you? I think there are, there are glaring issues that might be year-long issues because of personnel. With that said, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, my, my answer would be yes. All right. With that said, we always do this, and I don't want to sound like Tommy Bowden because my father lost this weekend and Joe Paterno lost this weekend. But pay attention, man. If you just pay a little bit of attention. Ohio State gave up over 500 yards to Oregon, who got outgamed by Fresno State the week before. Ohio State just gave up 503 yards to Tulsa and was in fourth quarter or five minutes to go in the game, or three minutes to go in the game. It's a seven point game with Tulsa. Uh, why? Because all three linebackers graduated, two defensive backs, three defensive backs graduated, and you lost a, a really good edge rusher as well. Personnel is the issue there. Alabama cannot run the football this year. Alabama, I think, is 11th or 12th in the SEC in rushing. Uh, they out, they got outgained by Florida with Emory stinking Jones, at quarterback, 245 to 91 on the ground. Why? Because Najee Harris and, and Alex Leatherwood aren't, aren't there right now, and, and it's a personnel issue a little bit. Now, they're going to get better at times in there. Uh, you know, Oklahoma, have you watched Oklahoma this year? Their game, they against, their game against Nebraska offensively was basically a mirror image of Clemson's games against Georgia Tech. 100%. Why? Because Creed Humphrey's not there right now, and, and they got a lot of personnel issues that are going on. Um, when, when Mike Krzyzewski's teams, when he has back issues, why? Because he has personnel issues. Uh, <laughs> it's college athletics. A lot of turnover, man. You know, there's a lot of a stinking turnover. That sometimes, Larry, sometimes you can plug and play. Justin Ross was a plug and play as a freshman. Trevor Lawrence, plug and play as a freshman. You know, Makuba right now is a plug-and-play guy. But because it happens for six straight years, it doesn't mean it's going to happen every year. <clears throat> However, with the staff, my, my deal is that I trust this staff that has gotten them to this point, that originally have the expectation to do the best they can with what they've got. Here's the, the reasonable counter, I think, that some fans out there would, would present to you. To, to, to what you just said and that is okay Alabama comparison well Alabama did have a great offensive line last year <laughs> Clemson hasn't had a great offensive line in how long and this would be the most opportune time to have a, a high level offensive line because when you do lose what Clemson lost last year in Travis Etienne Trevor Lawrence Amari Rogers Jackson Carmen you can then lean on your offensive line as your as your first year starter at quarterback is adjusting and other guys are adjusting. So therefore 
if you play Georgia Tech with a higher level offensive line and they come out in that 3-2 front that basically says, we don't think you can run the ball against us and we're going to keep all your passing stuff in front of us, you smash them for 350 yards and you win maybe not by 30, but you win much more comfortably. And you probably get them out of that defense uh, at some point in the game too, which would set up more play action passing stuff down the field. Is, is that right. is that reasonable? Reasonable, yes. Now, a I would counterpoint to that though. Are we sure Clemson's not had really good offensive lines in the past? I, I I will definitely push back on the on the notion that they've been bad the whole time, and they've only won in spite of them. Um. That at eighteen line, uh, I mean, I remember going into that dang Alabama game saying, "How are they going to block these guys?" Well, they didn't overwhelm them, but they blocked the crap out of them. They they pass protected masterfully to give Trevor Lawrence time, and then they spent the last ten minutes of that game on the field. So driving them all right down the Yeah, and then and then this against the in the sixteen championship. They're pretty good, man. Like they weren't great, but that's one of the best defensive lines in college football history. And they neutralized them for some key stretches of that game. And that's a big deal too. So I agree well, with you. It's not fair you know, to say they haven't had some pretty solid offensive lines. I don't think you can be I don't think you have to be great on the offensive line in today's college football world. I think there's enough spread, enough quick throw game, enough playmakers on the edge, and, and enough Deception. I don't think it had to be great. I don't think it could be terrible. And I'm just not sure. You know, let, let, let's just look at just facts for a second, all right? And I'm going to take the Kelly Bryant year out because it was not balanced in that year. But going back in five of the last six years, Clemson averaged 38 points a game, 38.5, 39.2, 44.3, 43.9, 43.5. Total yards, 15.5. Uh, 515, 504, 527, 529, 502. I'm not sure you can average 40 points and 500 yards and not have a good offensive line. Uh, you know, and, and have some NFL guys in there, too. You know, So is the goal then, and oh, by the way, winning national championships, right. is the goal to have a great offensive line or is the goal to win and to score points? How do you measure an offensive line? I would say... Part of that would be, we had the metrics. Pro football focus is crazy in how we do some of that. But I would say I would measure my offensive line. Part of it is, what are your goals? Win games, score a bunch of points, get a bunch of yards. Well, they've broken every school record in points, yards, and game win, you know, wins. And so I'm not sure Clemson has been bad on the offensive line in, in five of the last six years. No, and it feels like the, the correct or – uh, reasonable take on the offensive line is is they've been they've been pretty good until the last season plus when last year zero depth zero this right. year so far I mean just the, totally the mere fact that you have to play a freshman at left guard who is simply he's it, it's not fair to him I mean that, right. Devers totally said that last night like the, the fact that you're in that predicament. Um, so, in, in other words, I think it feels like things have come to a head with this offensive line uh, in the well, last couple of years. It has. I agree with that. But even then, even as bad as – and they weren't good last year, right? They, they broke the school record for passing yards in a season per game. 
they only played 10 because of COVID there in the regular season. But they, they, they threw for 349 yards, which is a school record. And, you know, a different way of getting it done, I get it. So, so the great offensive lines in college football right now, Alabama is one. I would dare say that Alabama, part of that, I had a text today say, why does Alabama, why don't people run too high against Alabama? Well, they do, but then Najee Harris goes off and destroys you with Alex Leatherwood blocking for them. And so people forget, I mean, Alabama is a, is a balanced machine through all that, and, and they're going to make you pay for whatever you give them. Is Wisconsin a great offensive line? Because last year Wisconsin averaged 25 points a game. The highest they've averaged in the last seven years is 34 points a game. Wisconsin still has not averaged more than 469 yards a game in the last seven years. And Wisconsin, as great as that offensive line is, in the last two years, 346 total offense and 433 total offense. Is, is, was Notre Dame a great offensive line last year? I, I probably think they, you know, I, I would say they were uh, with, with NFL draft-wise and who they're putting out. The numbers at Notre Dame, Notre Dame wasn't putting up offensive numbers like Clemson's put up. So is the goal, uh, let me give you Notre Dame quickly. 33 points a game last year, 449. Notre Dame, and Brian Kelly has not averaged 500 yards a game yet, has not averaged more than 36 points a game. Georgia recruits all five stars on the offensive line. Let me remind you that Georgia, 32 points a game, 30 points a game, 37 for one year, 35 for one year, and Georgia has never averaged more than 465 a game under Kirby Smart. I mean, so is the goal to have a great offensive line or is it to score points and, and, and get a bunch of yards? Clemson's done better than almost everybody in the country in those two things and better than any team in Clemson history in five of the last six years. And we should also point out, in fairness, none of us – went into this season thinking that this offensive line was going to be great shakes in the first three games. Right. <laughs> like, it was not a surprise to see them struggle against Georgia. I mean, I remember going into that game saying, even Tony Elliott went into that game saying, we're not going to be able to run the ball conventionally. Like, we're going to have to figure out ways to get to the outside. And um, Yeah, but you don't run the ball. One, I had a Georgia call to me. Georgia Greg called my chef and Greg, a great player. He says, Clumps is not going to run the ball on the outside. And the reason he said that is, my goodness, look at Tyndall chase the football down. And look at Dean chase that football down. And Anderson, man, the, the, I, I don't think you run them on the perimeter with the University of Georgia. No. Now, no maybe, maybe jet sweep-wise, maybe. You know, I thought I thought Georgia did a great job with Cook because they, Georgia does not have a natural inside receiver like an Amari Rogers, like a, a David Scott, Ray Ray McCall. They don't have that. Cook ran that. Say it again. So they put Cook in the slot and yeah, ran the, yeah, they yeah. ran the jet yeah. Cook. Yeah, because they didn't have any other healthy uh, receivers. They were all. Right. Uh, that's right. a, uh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Another no point. Doubt. Another point to all this is is <laughs> we're we're three weeks in, and things can change uh, uh, between now and October, November, and 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 case in point, sort of the national discussion uh, about the state of college football just in the last three weeks, Mickey. Like, in the opener, it's <laughs> – so Alabama thrashes freaking Miami. Clemson and Georgia have a low-scoring game. And I remember reading at the time, it's, oh, God, here we go. It's tip, same old, same old. Nobody's close to Alabama. And we really need a 12-team playoff to – this is an existential crisis because this death march, this Alabama death march just continues. Nobody's going to stop it. And now, two weeks later, <laughs> two weeks later, the story is, oh man, what's wrong with all these elite teams that are that are struggling? 
Why is there so much parody? And I'm just like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Remember they buried Alabama after the 44-16 game? Yes. And the next year, Bama didn't make the playoffs the next year. LSU beat them in Tuscaloosa. Tua got hurt. LSU beat them in one of the greatest teams anybody's ever seen. And people were burying Nick Saban. He's old. Uh, the program's going downhill. Um, I, I don't I don't know if Clemson's going to be back, but you keep recruiting the way you're recruiting. You know, you're going to have some special years in there some years. Some years you aren't. Um, Oklahoma, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State. I'm going to trust those guys in their recruiting. But it's hard, man. Again, if, we're, if you're not signing a left tackle to a 10-year contract and, and a pro bowl tackle that you can put out there on an island for 10 years, you got turnover, and you got injuries, and you got young kids, and you got only 11 times in three games. It's not going to go great all the time. And um, but but again, I, I think dangerous to to talk down to people. I don't want to do that because I don't have the answers. But in, in going of eat the plumber on Facebook trying to tell me what's wrong or Dabo Sweeney, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cast my lot with Dabo Sweeney. You know, he's earned the equity to me more so than Pete the plumber. On the national media front. Uh, I read Sunday, Alabama looks mortal for the first time in years. <laughs> I mean, okay, I sat and watched that game, thanks to the thanks to the lightning delay. I actually really enjoyed it, too, the game uh, in, the, in the swamp. And my takeaway was, more, was, was basically, wow, Alabama is looking really um, – Really soft uh, against the run. You know, Florida was able to run it against them. I think, as you as you've said, but also, wow, Bryce Young is a hell of a freaking football player. Yeah. Uh, the way he managed that game and sort of felt it, you know, in his first real test, you know, in, in a in a super hostile environment. But I did not come away saying, "Oh man, Alabama's looking mortal for the first time in years." Like, where does this stuff come from? Because I'm not a national media person. I don't follow Alabama super closely, but I know off the top of my freaking head that a year ago, three weeks in, they had given up 700 yards to Ole Miss. And every – correct me if I'm wrong. There's only been one year where Alabama has gone the entire regular season and just – smoked everybody with no questions asked, and that was 2018. And that's when they got curb stomped by Clemson in the championship game. Every other year, there's been this, oh, my God, they're mortal. Cracks in the foundation. Nick Saban's losing it. Right? Am I missing anything? We, Larry, we see what we want to see. Right? And people want to see that. You know, this national media on Clemson right now, they want to see that. Ohio State media right now, we want to see all that. Now, there are signs, though, but there are signs every year. Those are covered up. They're also covered up over 15 weeks. You know, we're, we just think it's three weeks. Oh, by the way, I got to give you credit on Ole Miss because I'm watching them a lot more closely now. Ole Miss is going to move the ball in Alabama. Dude, so, they, they are the most exciting topic right now, in my opinion, in college football. That offense. Yep. yep. They're going to move the football in Alabama. It's going to happen. Um, so, so whatever, break out that storyline you, you had this time last year when they put up 600-something, whatever against them, it's going to happen again because <laughs> they're just that good. It's a long season, and there's a bunch of injuries and transfers, and now we've got to do that. But now there's all kinds of things that are going on. So let's see where they are. Part of the reason why Alabama is, is, has been the king and Clemson has been so good and Ohio State has been so good is their, their C games win. 
where other C games lose, and everybody's going to have C games. And so where does your C game happen? Maybe maybe Ohio State's was against Oregon and they went out. I don't think that's the case. Maybe Clemson's was against Georgia Tech and they went out. I, I don't know. I'm not sure that's the case. But a lot to be determined over a long season, and we'll judge at the end. But let's let's slow our roll. I agree with you. Let's, let's don't put dirt on, on all these programs right now. Why not just enjoy the – the the roller coaster, you know, <laughs> that's what college football regular season is. I don't know. You mean, I, you mean wait all year for something to happen, <laughs> pay a bunch of money for ticket and parking and trucks and tailgate spots and satellite dishes, and then go sit miserable in a game? Oh, it, it I is. You're supposed to be miserable the entire game. It is funny seeing that the ratings were through the roof, through the absolute roof, to watch all these elite, you know top five teams that everybody said told us we were the people were bored of and and were yeah. not that didn't want to watch right yeah all right 100 percent. had a guy um in the south Carolina state game tell me how bad dj was and he used profanity and told me his garbage and then when he threw a pick he I, and i disagree with him and he threw a pick on the on the on the uh screenplay over there, the ball's tip and he clapped in my face i'm like wait a minute man so you're pulling against the Clemson player in order for you to look right. What? Yeah, something's something's out of whack. With but that's we're doing that right now, like with everything, all our politics. Like we want things to go bad, so you can say blame it on that guy because I told you I was right about this, this, and this. I don't know, man. I, I don't need to be right that much. I, I don't have all the answers, man. I, I'm sorry, I don't have all the answers, but I'm gonna put faith in people who have had answers in the past. And maybe Ohio State's not as bad as we think. Maybe Alabama's not as bad as we think. And even if they are, maybe Clemson's not as bad as we think. Even if they are, though, then they'll be back next year. You know, Alabama wasn't dead after 2018. They came back. Everything was okay. Well, you got to go. I just want to close. You, you had that great line when you sent me the text about Clemson's offense being more dangerous than Lightning. And I didn't think of this <laughs> line. I didn't think of this line until after I sent my story. That's the way it always works. But. Uh, should, I should have led my story with lightning didn't touch down and neither did Clemson's offense. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, but it, on that one quickly, all right? All right. Uh, I'm familiar with that lightning system because I play golf at the Walker course. And however they set it, 8 miles, 10 miles, 12 miles, whatever it is, lightning can hit 8 miles out on the east side of the golf course and the storm's moving east. And there's no threat of it. We still got to wait 30 minutes. If you, if you notice the wording on the screen about the ask and stuff like this and where they word their stuff, it's so lawyer-driven, man. We're so scared somebody's going to sue you. Like, I can make this. I stayed in the stadium. I couldn't make you leave. There was no threat of anybody getting hurt Saturday. Finish the halftime, adjust then. Because it might be lightning on Lake Kiwi or in Anderson does not mean anybody was any kind of threat. I know you got to get a lot of people out of there. And I know people have different circumstances, and, and safety's paramount. But like, I'm not going to get struck by lightning. I hate lightning. I'm scared of lightning. There was zero threat anybody to get struck by lightning Saturday that football game. Uh, and that leads to even more frustration. And part of, maybe part of the cause why we've been such on edge all week long, maybe. Anyway, um, common sense might prevail at some point in time. Yeah, maybe. I think one of the problems was most storms, most lightning storms are moving, you know. And that one didn't move. That one was just sitting there. It was really strange. So it was like a. But it also didn't, but it also didn't move towards the stadium either. Right, right. Right. <laughs> I mean, there was no lightning anywhere near that football stadium on Saturday, or those tailgate spots on Saturday, or on the, off- the off- or on the offenses. offenses, or on the offensive side of football, and for either team on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we did, we did a whole podcast. 
didn't mention anything about special teams or defense, huh? Pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. I know. Hey, man, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. I always enjoy. I hope I don't pull your ratings down too far. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business open the door to more with harris home and harris commercial their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details harris handles every step of your renovation process whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting like some of the positively stunning work they've done at clemson university go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from harris home and harris commercial solero communications formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. All right, joined by Joe. Joe, yo, how you doing, man? I'm great, Larry. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, um, we've had a number of media types as guests uh, on a fairly regular basis, including some who have uh, old newspaper guys who have who have reinvented themselves and you're now a radio guy. Is that right? It is. Yeah. I, I still write, but mostly I, I do talking now. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you at the Raleigh news and observer? And then how long were you there strictly covered NC state? Well, I started at the NNO when I was still at NC state as a um, junior actually. So I was actually there for 24 years. Wow. Total. Yeah, yeah. Um, worked at night, did agate, answered the phone, put the box scores in. I uh, used to do like the ACC uh, stats and box scores by hand and just kind of worked my way up. And uh, 04 is when I started really covering, well, 03 football was Duke football, really started covering the ACC. And then starting in 08, I uh, started covering NC State basketball, and then NC State football was added to that list in E11. And then what brought on the move? Was it something that you just decided to do, or was it the typical sort of 
furloughs or layoffs or things like that. They, they brought that on. So there were 230 or so newsroom employees when I started at the News and Observer in 1995. And one of those other 232 happened to be my future wife. And then it, when I left in 2020, there were 45 newsroom, newsroom employees. And one of them was my current wife. Um, <laughs> so we decided, you know, it would not be in our best interests uh, as, as much as we have loved the paper and loved the business and as much as it was a badge of uh, honor to make it through all of that, um, you know, we decided, hey, what, what else could we do? And the opportunity actually presented itself to me after... Uh, filling in on a Friday before NC State and Clemson played in 2019. The uh, Chris Fowler, I've never seen people leave after the first quarter <laughs> game. Um, so that uh, opened the door for me to work for Capital Broadcasting up here, which is kind of a unique company in the sense that they own the local NBC affiliate. They own the ESPN affiliate for radio. And then our website, WRALsportsfan.com, is tops in traffic uh, in the state of North Carolina. So it uh, really gives me an opportunity to still write, um, which is great. And then the radio shows every day, uh, 3 to 6.30. TV I do once or twice a week. And now we've gotten into um, allowed me to sit and talk to people that I've covered and have a little like like this, you know, just kind of have a little bit longer conversation with them and uh, kind of get into some different some different subjects. So we had we did one on Russell Wilson and his exit from NC State, and then uh, we have one coming up on Roy Williams that'll kind of cover his whole pretty much his whole career at Kansas and North Carolina. So really, those have kind of scratched an itch for me in terms of um, doing some of the things that I really enjoyed doing when I was in the paper. Being a newspaper writer, and I guess just being a writer in general covering a team, there's something that's really fulfilling about it. Um, there aren't many days where it feels like, oh gosh, this feels like work. I don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, and there's something fulfilling just about the writing process in general, at least as far as I'm concerned. What yes. do you miss the most about your former job, and what do you miss the least? So I mentioned I started as the agate clerk, which is statistics. You know, everyone had a scoreboard page. And I, I got to tell you, Larry, when one of those, part of that job was going down to the printing, the press room, and getting the, the early editions and bringing them back upstairs so everyone could read it. And that was such a big thrill for a 19 year old me and as someone who grew up, I grew up in the, um, I grew up in New Jersey, but I, lived, I grew up outside of New York city and read the paper every day, read different papers every day. Uh, there was so many different options when I was growing up and reading papers and then the national, which was a national uh, sports publication. My dad got me that sports illustrated sporting news. So I have, I had like this romanticized ideal of what the print industry was. And just to be 
in the press room and to go downstairs and get those proofs and get the early editions and to see your name. Um, and then, you know, just kind of the compartmentalized idea of here's my day's work, here's the proof of it. When you picked up that paper the next day and, and saw your story, saw the work that you put in and, and the immediate return of that. Uh, I, I, but that, it's been... Uh, what, 10, really, 15 years since that was how we really truly consume media information uh, via print. So that, but that's still an ideal that I've, I've kind of missed. Um, and, you know, the least, you know, that it, the way that we interact, you mentioned it is a fulfilling part of being, working a beat. And, and you understand this even without a, a print element, like, you're lucky to interact with the players. You're lucky to interact with the assistant coaches and the, and the head coach. And, and yes, it's not a friendship, but you do have a relationship with those people, particularly the ones that like you. Yeah. And you, now with COVID and Zooms and, um, and completely understandable limited access, you don't have the ability to... Um, have those types of relationships like this week I talked to Joe Selfo uh, who's now an assistant coach at Gardner-Webb but was a center on uh, NC State's 2016 team and it was just kind of one of my favorite people because all of the people on that team either weren't great with the media so many of the people on that team were not great with the media it didn't or necessarily like me but Joe liked me and so it became like every week we would talk because that was my guy. That was the person who helped me out. And you just, you don't have that same ability, you know, it, not, not just in the, my current role, but just because of COVID and because of how the protocols are changing. And quite frankly, because of how schools and professional teams view the media now, like they don't, they don't really see a need for them. They, they you know, they want to control it themselves with their own social media information. It's, tell me if this makes sense. I mean, I, I was a newspaper guy too for ten years. I also met my current wife at a newspaper at the High Point Enterprise in uh, mm-hmm. 1998. Um, so I have an appreciation for them for sure. But it seems like we need newspapers both less than ever from the sort of practical element of it, but also we need them more than ever. <laughs> like, if you tell me, like, the idea of a newspaper. In terms of like you get you get this one thing every day that has a digest and a prioritized digest of okay here's the, here's the most important thing on this front page of the newspaper and here's the less important stuff on the inside and then here's the sports page which tells tells you the most important sports thing that happens now there are just so many different elements of of how we consume news that I almost would rather have. If you could tell me that I could get a newspaper every morning now that actually uh, had the most current news in it in terms of like, you know, late last night instead of nowadays, newspaper deadlines are (laughs) like four four o'clock the previous afternoon or something stupid like that. Yes. But like, I I would buy that because I want to wake up in the morning and, and read the news, but I also want a focused version of the news if that makes any sense do you 
Do you see where I'm going with that? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, and I, and I think the most important part of the newspaper and, and however we want to refer to it going forward, right, the news media, it is the sense of accountability. And, you know, we saw the value of that in these last five, six, seven, eight years, um, politically, obviously. And no matter what side you're on, you, you got to try to keep people honest and keep them accountable, hold them accountable for their actions. And when there's not that independent voice and someone out there kind of keeping tabs and keeping score, uh, we, we can kind of delve into the situation that we're, we're, we're in now where nobody trusts anybody and uh, it's just all kind of this hellscape which is unfortunate because as you mentioned it was nice um, to have that generalized information at your fingertips each morning you know when I started like, at the end of the day, our deadline was 2.30 in the morning yeah. and I would work and that's how, long, that's how late I would work we would wait for those West Coast box scores and my last year at the end of no in 2020, the deadline was five o'clock in the afternoon. That is so sad. Yeah, amazing. So it used to be that the beat writer was just straight news uh, as far as yeah. no opinion, you know, maybe some analysis, but it was left to the columnist at your paper to hold the coach to account. You know, to call things like he saw it. In South Carolina, there were influential columnists in Charleston. Charleston had two, Ken Berger and Gene Sapikoff. The state yeah. the state had a couple. Greenville News had one, and there were others that don't come to mind right now. In North Carolina, there was Colton Tudor. There was Ed Harden. Yes. Uh, yep. There were the smaller, the columnists from the smaller papers who even had some influence. And now, in South Carolina at least, Sapikoff is the only one left that I can think of. And so it's sort of left to, you know, I mean, I say that as somebody who, I mean, I write opinion also, so it's like a, it's a, it's a murky mix between, uh, you know, uh, straight sort of coverage and opinionated coverage, but it's, it's weird because it, then it, it sort of compels everybody to have a take and that's kind of dangerous, right? Yeah, that, that's where we are because of that lack of access and that's what the schools have lost. It, yeah, I, I was the straight guy for, you know, 15 years. And that was my job to give you what was going on without my thoughts on it. And you're right. There, there's some analysis there, but it was Colin Tudor, who was my mentor. It was his job. And then Luke Takak, who's there now at the NNO, who's, who's like a just a, a really home run writer, unbelievable the insightful writer that they're lucky it's it's amazing that Luke has been able to follow Colton who was in my opinion just the best deadline writer there was I mean his brain was so sharp it was ridiculous Uh, the the humor and the information that he was able to have at his command uh, on a game's deadline was was just remarkable Um, but it's you know it's all it's all kind of changed and we've seen with social media and, and you know, the guy you cover is such a lightning rod in, in Dabo Sweeney that it's like, it's just unbelievable how things can be turned around and turned into something that half the time I'm just kind of like, was that really something? Like, 
<laughs> you know, like even even if you really want to start getting into Dave and NC State, Dave Bowen, it's like the, the laptop thing from uh, 2017, where it was like Dave was pissed after they lost because that was their best chance to win the ACC championship in in 37 years. Um, so it's kind of understandable he would be, you know, firing bullets after that game, and then. But it was kind of like, all right, um, I just remember Tim DeRay was like, yeah, that, that was an intern, you know, like for the social media. And like, that should have been the end of it, right? But it just, it just became like this weird uh, storyline that, that was kind of magnified by social media and whatnot. But uh, well, just, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just today or yesterday, the big sensation down here apparently was some some commentator from Barstools or something. I don't even know his name. I'd never heard of him. I can't recite his name off the top of my head. He said, what is this with Dabo running down the hill way before his team, in front of his team? This is the story that's, that is being ignored in college football. This is disturbing. And, right. and first of all, I'm like, okay, he's been doing that since 2008. So <laughs> since his first game as interim coach. And, but second of all, why is this such a big, why are people so in a tizzy over this? Like, why should I even, why do I even need to pay attention to it? Why do I need to opine on it when there, when it's just some guy, some random dude I've never I heard of? Like, so I didn't I and I haven't and I refuse to because who gives a crap? <laughs> It's amazing, Brian, the number of times I'll get sucked in on Twitter to, like, you know, a great example of these are those alleged polls or surveys, like, here's the best college town in each state, here's the best (laughs) candy bar in each state, here's the best, or you can even get more sports specific, like, here's the best offensive line in the ACC, and, like, somebody will say Florida State, and it's just kind of like, guys... Their offensive line is awful and has been for nine years. You know, it's like, what, what are we doing? And then that's where I'm just kind of like, why am I even responding to this? So yes. good for you. I saw uh, Kelly Gromlich had something about it on Twitter this morning, and I was just kind of like, yeah, I mean, he's the coach. He runs out first. I mean, the whole team's behind him. I don't, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think he's going out by himself. But um, maybe I'm misreading that. I, I, but I think. And I'm guilty of this, Larry. I people have Clemson fatigue. Yeah, you know, like I, I have it, uh, not in a negative way. Like, not, oh my gosh, I hate Dabo and he does this wrong and Clemson's bad. At, no, it's just a matter of man. I'd really love to see somebody else. You know, sure. <laughs> just like, but they've been so good for so long that that's what comes with that territory, kind of like the Yankees or. Um, or Alabama, the, the Lakers are now Alabama. Who, honestly, I thought, I thought they would go away, and Saban has just kind of figured out a way to reinvent himself on an annual basis with the coaching staff and um, just really the, the recruiting that they've done. Really, is, is just off the charts. Joe, what is your sort of finger on the pulse, sort of general view or feel for how Dave Doran is viewed by the average NC State fan uh, right now? I would say this. I think, as you know, there's probably, you know, 
10% of people who are want everybody gone, right? <laughs> For every fan base, there's probably a 10% that's never satisfied. Then there's probably 20% that is always going to love the team no matter what, right? Or they love the team, they support them, doesn't matter. And then, then you have that other 70% who was kind of like, all right, last year, eight and four, went seven and three in the ACC, had a bunch of problems, didn't have a quarterback. That was a really good year. And I think most of that 70% was, was I, I'd say all of that 70% was pro Dave after last year. Mm-hmm. And the problem after last year was you have so many of the same players back. They literally lost a Lee McNeil, who was a draft choice in the Lions. They lost uh, Joe Sculthorpe, one of their offensive linemen, who, who's a good player, but not, not extraordinary. And they lost a tight end who basically every other catch he had was a touchdown, but they kind of steadfastly refused to involve him more in the offense than he probably should have been. Everybody else kicked, punting, you name it. Like, they brought back 20 guys who started games last year. Like, it's ridiculous. And, and of course, when you look across college football, it, many of the, many teams can say the same thing. Now, when you bring that many people back from a team that, by NC State standards, had success, you want to see them take another step. So I think when you look, consider that 70% portion of the fan base, after going into that Mississippi State game, even though NC State fans, most of them are programmed to understand that NC State can't have nice things, there was still this hope that, you know, NC State could win this game because it's Mississippi State. It's not Alabama. It's not Auburn. It's not Florida. It's not Ole Miss this year, who I think has got a really good team. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, let's be honest, it's probably going to be one of the teams that finishes near the bottom of the SEC West. NC State goes there to give up the kickoff return for the touchdown on the first play of the game, kind of sort of recover, and then the thing falls apart in the second quarter. And I think from that point, I would say 50% of that 70% is now like, wait a second, what is Dave doing? Right? Because if you can't win games like this and he's been in that spot before, they played South Carolina in 2017 in a game to Charlotte that they lost. They went to West Virginia two years ago in a game that they lost. They, they lost to Kentucky in the bowl game last year, not a great Kentucky team. Um, so they've had these opportunities outside of the league to kind of make a statement because let's be honest, Clemson has put a stranglehold not only on the conference, but the division. So, Unlike Carolina and Duke, who can pop and win a division and hang your hat on that, State doesn't have that to hang their hat on because of Clemson. So it's like, well, what do you have? You have to have something outside of the league. And unfortunately for Dave, he hasn't had that. And I think the loss to Mississippi State is like a cumulative effect. It's not just the loss to Mississippi State. It's all of those other games that I've mentioned. So that doesn't mean anyone's ready to fire Dave Doran. Don't get me wrong. He still does more good things than he does bad. But at some point, for his own sanity, I would would believe, he's probably thinking, you know, a couple years ago he turned down uh, the Ole Miss job. He turned down the Oregon State job. And he's a little bit of a mess, but he's probably thinking to himself, all right, well, what's my future? Right? Because if if going seven and five and eight and four isn't good enough, well, that's probably good enough for me to get another job somewhere. 
that's probably more of the thought process than Boo Corrigan sitting here going, oh, I'm going to fire Dave if they lose to Clemson, or I'm going to get rid of Dave because we just go to a bowl game every year and that's it. You know what I'm saying? Yep. I saw something going into the season. I forgot where. It was from an NC State media outlet. It might have been the might have been the rivals site, um, but and I don't know if this was reflective of of just general sentiment. But somebody wrote that this looks like it could be this looks like Doran's best team, and yeah. I immediately was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I I was like, this might not be good because I thought those fifteen, sixteen. And 17 teams were really good, like it, it almost underachieved yeah, uh, in, in that they didn't get at least one of those wins over Clemson and, and had some losses where they shouldn't have shouldn't have lost based on that talent. So do, do you look at this team and say it could be his best, really? I look, You know what's funny is I had some people who were within the program who were like, this is going to be Dave's best team. And I said to them, I, would, I can buy deepest. Uh, I think they have, and, and that experience that I that I pointed out, but I can't buy best because they don't have a Bradley Chubb, they don't have a Naheem Hines, and they don't have that two or three players who are who, who will pop. Yeah. Uh, that seventeen that seventeen team ended up with fourteen draft picks on it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty freaking good if your name's not Alabama or Clemson. I mean, that's that's damn right or, or Ohio State. Like that's damn near impossible. Um, and that's kind of what Dave's strength has been, has been finding. And none of those players, I mean, Naheem was a good recruit. Naheem Hines was a great recruit. But none of those other guys were really highly thought of coming out of high school. So you can't argue with his development of players, and you can't really argue with his track record of, of putting players into the NFL. But to your point about that 17 team in particular, that was the, that was his best team. That, that was Chubb's last year. That was Naheem's last year, and that team, NC State's only won double-digit games once in school history. That's crazy. Once. And given the number of games that are played now and the number of teams who routinely win double-digit, have double-digit win seasons, it's ridiculous. And also, if you think about it in, the, in these terms, since 2000, NC State's had Philip Rivers for four years as a starter, Russell Wilson for three years as a starter. <laughs> Jacoby Brissett for two years as a starter. Mike Glennon for two years as a starter. And Ryan Finley for three years as a starter. Those are all NFL quarterbacks. And only once when Rivers was a junior were they able to win 10 games. And none of those teams were able to win the ACC championship or the Atlantic Division title either. And yes, Clemson has been outstanding since... Uh, if you want to go to, go back to 12, that's fine. But there were certainly opportunities in there for NC State to have those moments. And that's really also the cumulative effect for NC State fans. It's kind of like going into this year. Yeah, I th- and Peyton Wilson was their best player, and he's out now for the year um, with a shoulder injury, which he suffered at the end of the half against Mississippi State and really kind of, I think, contributed to that loss but it's kind of like I'm with you I, I the 17 team I believe was was his best team and they left a few wins on the table and this team I, I think is I do think is the deepest because they did they were able to add some players in the portal 
that ha- that were potentially going to help him. One of them already got hurt and was out for the year. Cyrus Fagan. Um, but I think the depth was there, or, or they would probably argue 11 through, you know, 45. They have more talent than, than the 17 team. But to me, I, I'd rather have a player like Chubb. I'd rather have Naheem and Jalen Samuels and guys like that than, um, than to have more good players. I'd rather have a few great players and, and just average behind them than have, than have a bunch of good players, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, it's early, we're, we're, you know, we're three games in, but when I watch NC State right now, it, it's not what it was when I look, you know, when, when I watch them in 16 and 17, there were several players where you go, whoa, who is that guy? You know, you mentioned yeah. Hines and Samuels, Kelvin Harmon, Jacoby Myers, yep. like yep. some dang yep. good players. And uh, yeah. I, I'm curious, I was going uh, back and forth with David Hale, not an argument, but just a discussion earlier this week um i was surprised when i looked back and saw that the only the only win that doran has over teams that have finished in the top 25 was last year over liberty yeah, which yeah. i think finished I finished 15th or 17th one in 22 like and hale was saying and he, it's a pretty good point that hey you know there are tons of other schools out there uh, that are somewhat similar uh, record-wise, yeah. but you look at those—all those schools, <laughs> all those schools have fired at least one coach over that well, stretch, sure. and, and, and I mean, all of those other schools probably have a division title or a conference title or a, a double-digit win season that NC State hasn't had. Yes. and I think that's kind of part of the first. Like if Dave in seventeen and eighteen, they went out of four. If he went ten and three in those two years, he could—he could—he could. We would never even have a conversation about him. And you're old enough to remember Herb Sendek. If he had won the 2003 ACC tournament, he would have been. He'd still be NC State's coach to this day. Yes. Like, <laughs> you have to have something in the bank for moments like this when people start kind of pouring through the numbers and saying, "Well, what happened? Well, what have you done?" And then you can then you can point back to, "Oh, that's what we've done," and that's what NC State's been missing. I mean, Larry, they haven't won a conference title. In football since 1979, they haven't won a, a conference basketball title since the 89 regular season. They haven't won a baseball title in the ACC regular season or tournament since 92. That's the, they're the only Power 5 conference that hasn't at least shared a conference championship regular season or won it in the postseason. This century, they're the only one. Like It's, it's amazing. It's a it's a bond. Sorry, you broke up there for the last two or three seconds. Oh, it's a mind-boggling stat yeah. if you think about it, that they're the only Power 5 conference team that hasn't done it in those three sports. And it's more mind-boggling football-wise, and, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, uh, before Clemson and Florida State sort of rediscovered themselves in 11, 12, and beyond, I mean, Wake Forest won it in 06. Boston yeah. College won back-to-back. Yeah. They went to the championship in back-to-back years. Duke Duke has won one since. I mean, that's just uh, NC State's not a football factory, but they most they damn sure care about football and invest more in football than freaking Duke and Wake Forest and Boston College. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's just it doesn't really make any sense. And then when you add in the talent that they've had, uh, obviously those Rivers teams are the ones that I would I would point the, the biggest finger to. 
a motto or a motto. Uh, if you want, if you're not old enough to remember Chuck Amato, just watch Manny Diaz. It's it's Manny who coached for him at NC State. It's pretty much the same. You're looking at a team that had no discipline but had a bunch of talent, and you're like, what are they doing? I don't understand. <laughs> it's almost like at NC State, as a football coach, you need kind of a force of nature type. Um, yeah. uh, not a gimmicky type, but just a somebody who's not, who doesn't have the personality of cardboard. I mean, and, and you look at Lane Kiffin, what he's doing at Ole Miss right now, and you have to, if you're an NC State, I mean, I don't know if this is part of the regular conversation, but I would imagine some NC State fans are thinking, man, what if, what if we had that guy who's a force of nature as a personality and also a flipping genius as an offensive mind? I mean, that's the type, I think, that, that seems... Yeah to give you a better shot than Dave Doran, who just doesn't really seem to have the charisma or the, the type of uh, leadership that people just players, coaches, fans want to just jump on and say, man, let's go. Let's do this. Does that make sense? Yeah. And don't forget Lane Kiffin's dad was NC state's coach yeah. in the early eighties. So, um, and it, that ship has sailed. I think when he was on his rehabilitation <laughs> tour, at uh, Florida Atlantic, or where, that, that's where he was, right? I think that was probably the time to figure that out. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how the world works going forward. With obviously all the money that the SEC spends, like even at a school in Ole Miss, it, it's difficult to compete with that if you're a middle of the road power five team. And some people might hold their noses at this, but Hugh Freeze, I mean. If, if you want to uh, win, well, he lost the Dave though. <laughs> very, true. <laughs> very true. But head-to-head matchups, I don't really pay much attention to that. I pay more attention to the overall sure, body of sure. work. But what do you think happens Saturday? Uh, all right. So, how much of Will Shipley's family tree have oh. you kind of dug into? Not much. What, t- tell me. Okay. As my understanding, it's not just his parents who went to NC State, but many, many branches <laughs> oh, of his family are oh. all like NC State grads. And the only way this would have been worse in terms of what's going to happen on Saturday is if Will Shipley had not touched the ball all year. I, I would have guaranteed you if, if Will Shipley had been on the bench and not played at all, he would have run for 100 yards and three touchdowns against NC State on Saturday. Um, I still think he'll have a big game against NC State on Saturday. I hate for NC State that Clemson struggled the way they did with Georgia Tech, who I don't have a high opinion of, um, especially at home. I, I, you're going to have to explain that one to me a little bit for me. Um, but I, I just I, I suspect NC State will play well, um, maybe a little bit like not the uh, 17 game, but the 15 game that was a shootout in terms of it was a competitive game and then Clemson pulled away late. I I could see that type of, you know, 21-10, 24-10 Clemson win. I I think NC State's going to struggle to move the ball against Clemson's defense. And unless they get super creative with their run game, the, the, the biggest marvel I've ever had in the last 10 years and covering games because I think you do the same. You go back and watch the games the next day, mm-hmm. maybe even another, uh, a third for a third time. Right. Yep. And I, there was a stretch there between 
15 and 19 where I watched more NC State football than I, I could safely say I watched more NC State football just based on the number of times I watched each game than anyone not paid to watch, you know, not on a coaching staff, right? right. And when whoever was in charge of the scout for the 18 game, and I, I don't know which analyst it was, it, it, was, it blew my mind that I knew what NC State was going to do because I literally watched every game three times, right? Well, NC State runs a play action on their, either their first or second series that Tanner Muse absolutely blows up and knew was coming. And I thought to myself, this game, and it was the second series of the game. I'm like, this game's over. I, like, there's, there, and there's just no way that they could be this prepared. I'm like, how could they possibly know all this? But I guess they give each analyst a team to kind of dissect the way that I dissect NC State. And they found, they ran a play too, Larry, in that game in 18. Um, that it was, a, it was the exact play that Boston College had run two weeks prior against NC State. And, of course, Boston College's quarterback was not Trevor Lawrence and missed the throw. Uh, Trevor Lawrence did not miss the throw. <laughs> Deep shot, they connect. It was either the first or second touchdown of that game. And I was just blown away by Clemson's preparation. And um, I, I just, the way NC State right now with their tendency to run behind Aki Aquanu, I, I just, they either need to pull him or they need to run away from him which is, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he's your best blocker. Um, but, yeah, like you could tell even in the Mississippi State game, they were looking at it like, oh, first 79. Okay, that's where they're running. Um, so I know uh, Clemson, James Skalski, and, and Nolan Turner, those guys are being really prepared. Joe, thanks for joining us, man, especially on short notice. Really appreciate you, you sharing your time. Absolutely, Larry. Appreciate you having me on. And, uh, Hopefully we can do it again sometime. All right. Two great guests there and great conversation. Really appreciate Joe and Mickey for joining us. Appreciate the support of our seven very loyal sponsors. And last but most, thanks to all of you for hitting play every week. Really appreciate it. Everybody have a great and safe weekend. Cheers.